0: Welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. My co-host, Emma Ashford, is off enjoying a little well-deserved vacation this week. Uh, And our focus today is the Trump doctrine. As a candidate, Trump's America first rhetoric got a lot of observers on all sides of the aisle pretty riled up. Um, But... At that point, it wasn't clear what America First or the Trump Doctrine really meant and what they would wind up looking like. Uh, Now a year into Trump's presidency, I think we have a better idea of what it looks like, uh, but we're still sorting through what it means and what its impacts will be. Joining me to unpack all of this are two wonderful guests, Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and the Henry A. Kissinger Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies where she is the director of the International Security Program, and Hal Brands, uh, the Henry A. Kissinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and Senior Fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. And I will note in in his shameless marketing self-interest that he is the author most recently of American Grand Strategy in the Age of Trump, uh, which you can now buy on Amazon. Uh, Hal, Kath, thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks for for having us. us.
0: Uh, normally, we start with, with news tidbits, but we're going to dispense with that since we have uh, two special guests today. I won't waste any time on news. Uh, so let's just jump right into it and, and talk about the Trump Doctrine. And l- let's start by giving our guests a baseline. Um, maybe they're not um, uh, as into the foreign policy weeds as we are. Uh, what is the Trump Doctrine? Let's, let's get a baseline. What, what would you guys describe the Trump Doctrine as being?
2: So I, I think it's basically an unstable and awkward mix of uh, what you might think of as America first nationalism and more traditional uh, post-war American internationalism. Uh, and so looking back about a year now, uh, I think one of the the predictions that a few people made at the beginning of 2017 was that, uh, yes, Trump has a, a body of ideas that he tends to believe in very deeply with respect to US foreign policy, and they mostly revolve around the idea that the United States gets a bum deal from the international order that that it constructed. But uh, because some of those ideas were contradictory, so it was going to be hard to uh, really get tough with with China and the Pacific while also getting rid of TPP, for instance, and also because uh, of the fact that most of Trump's advisors were coming from a more traditionalist background, you were likely to get... Uh, a mishmash uh, of policies uh, as as ideas were actually translated into action, and I think that's mostly been the case over the past years. And you can of the past year, and you can see this just by the fact that we've had about three or four iterations of the debate of uh, are the adults in the room winning? Is the America First uh, doctrine winning? Uh, we saw the first part of that when uh, Trump appeared to be being mainstreamed in March and April, when he even carried out uh, a punitive strike on Syria uh, to enforce the Obama era red line. and Then just two months after that, he was withdrawing from the Paris Accords or announcing his intention to withdraw from the Paris Accords rather uh, and taking a more hard-edged approach on a number of issues. And, and So you've had this yo-yo effect so far and, and to the extent that there is a Trump doctrine, I, I think it, that yo-yo effect actually is it.
1: Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with Hal. I mean, if I always like to play with movie titles, so I'd I'd pick our brand is chaos, um, which I think I might have said here a year ago at an event of yours, (laughs) it still holds true. And and there's been very little in the last year that hasn't simply reinforced that. You know, I think the national security strategy that recently came out, the talk at Davos, and then I strongly suspect the State of the Union address, all will uh, attempt to bridge Uh, These uncomfortable, you know, two truths that are holding forth in the administration. One is this America first um, isolationist um, uh, sort of stream that came from candidate Trump and has been with him for many years, even before he entered politics formally. And the internationalist sentiment that's well, (laughs) thoroughly through many of his cabinet members, most notably his national security advisor, his uh, secretary of defense, his chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and and to a lesser extent, others. Um, And that's an uncomfortable area to try to bridge because it's, you know, rhetorically can make it work. And that's why you hear so much of this, you know, America first is not America alone, which can be true. Um, but the reality of how they've manifested that, as I think Hal's laid out in various areas, they're very confusing to allies and partners. They're confusing, which could be good, but also could lead to miscalculation from, from potential adversaries, which, of course, is something we all worry about. And in the end, result is what you you have really more than anything is a damage control mentality that prevents initiative, prevents big new ideas From taking hold and moving forward for some of us who would be suspicious of what a Trump administration bold new initiative might be that can be good Um, but it's very hard in a world in which other actors notably China but they're not alone, are able to progress and move forward their vision of the world for the United States to be at best in stasis. And that is, you know, on top of the chaos, that reality of us sitting still to some extent at best um, while others lean in, um, that I think is going to be the theme of 2018 as we fall further behind in that dynamic.
0: Mm, Interesting. So let me ask you guys— you know, a year ago, Kathy mentioned we had an event here where we sort of tried to divine what would the Trump doctrine look like, and I think I think most of us got most of the big items right: economic nationalism, sort of disdain for the international world, and this America first first nationalism, uh, sort of an enhanced militarism at the same time, where sort of diplomacy is kind of an afterthought, and and the way to deal with the solutions is the big stick. Uh, but, but having sort of identified those big things, that's not the same as saying I know what it's going to look like when he does it. And so the question I have now is, does it look like what you thought it would? I mean, or, or I mean, if you thought it would look like anything, or do, what is how is it different? Is there anything surprising so far?
2: So I, I think one very good example of it looking um, one way in which it looks what we like what we thought it was going to look like is the utter. Um, The very jarring difference between the national security strategy, which was released in mid-December, and the speech that Trump gave the very day that the national security strategy was released. And so the national security strategy was doing precisely what Kath was talking about. It was trying to uh, put America first language on relatively traditional policies. Uh, And I think it actually had a lot of things in there that that most people in the D.C. community could probably – support. Uh, It was relatively clear in terms of who our allies are and who our adversaries are. It actually talked about the role of values in foreign policy, which is something that this president uh, has rarely done. And then literally as people were reading that document, the president was giving a speech uh, across town where he was uh, saying that our allies are the worst offenders in terms of exploiting our, lar- our largesse. They're the ones that we're competing with in the economic sphere. We can't wait to do all these great things with the Russians and, and so on and so forth. And, and So you could see kind of the national security strategy was the McMaster Doctrine. Uh, the speech was the Trump Doctrine uh, and it's at the intersection of those two things where a lot of the chaos and the uncertainty has happened.
1: Yeah, I think the, I'd pick a very tangible thing that I did not see coming in, maybe, you know, thematically was there, but not in its depth. And that is the complete collapse of the diplomatic establishment of the United States, the State Department in particular. That's, um, I, I I just didn't see us having a State Department that just couldn't function, that hadn't filled positions, and that would just... Speed the degree to which it has collapsed would just speed all these other trends by by uh, you know removing the United States from many of the conversations um, in country, if you will, overseas that it needs to be involved in in order to keep a hand um, on the tiller. So that's um, just is I, a reckoning. I think I would say that um, we're still going to see more from.
0: Yeah, interesting. I, I guess for me the. Um, one surprise, and that would certainly qualify as one of the big ones for me, too. Uh, but another one is that, you know, I thought Trump, you know, his tough talk about terrorism, I, I predicted, you know, roughly, not exactly, that he would probably seek to increase, you know, the the uh, pace and, and volume of, of strikes against ISIS and, and so on. But what I did not predict was that Something about the way he thinks of military force, and I, I and I'm not sure what else. Um, the way he got into a brouhaha with North Korea so quickly, I, I just did not expect that that would be part of his. His game. I, I mean, existing things that he inherited. He'll try to do them harder. But I didn't. I really did not expect him to go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. Maybe to the extent he has.
2: Yeah, I would put that one in the category of things that are a mix of issues that he inherited and issues that that he where he has put his own distinct stamp on this thing. I think that. Um, at the end of 2016, the North Korea issue was actually reaching a crisis point faster than most people realized, just because the North Koreans had made such dramatic progress uh, with their missile program over the past year. And, and so uh, I don't know that Trump needed to ring in the new year in 2017 by saying that North Korea is never going to have an ICBM, uh, but I think any administration would have had to deal with this. The way that, that he put his own distinctive stamp on it. Uh, was through these uh, sort of unorthodox contributions to to US diplomacy. So one, uh, continually ramping up the rhetoric, uh, certainly between about January and and the fall of 2017, uh, drawing additional red lines that that seemed to be impossible to to enforce. So uh, North Korea had better stop threatening us lest we rain fire and fury on them uh, and so forth. And then bizarrely picking fights with South Korea in the middle of a confrontation with North Korea, whether that was over missile defense or over trade or over a variety of things. And so this is an issue where I think that at the cabinet and subcabinet level, the policy that the United States has been following is not particularly unusual. And I think that uh, although I largely agree with, with Kath's uh, characterization of the State Department, this is actually an area where we have made a little bit of diplomatic progress in terms of isolating. North Korea. But it's, it's punctuated with these presidential interventions that, that have the effect of making people wonder what U.S. policy is and whether it's actually the United States or North Korea that's the source of the instability in the relationship.
1: Yeah, I would just add, uh, just continuing that theme with regard to the U.S. and Japan and U.S. and South Korea. I mean, I think in a way you can look at Trump certainly not as thinking in these specific terms, but in a Clausewitzian, you know, sense of center of gravity, like recognizing in some ways that the alliance structure we have and any weaknesses that come from it are, you know, de- could be used to degrade the United States. But his tactical approach has basically been to to attack it himself. And, and adversaries, North Korea is foremost among these as a great example, um, also sees that that's our center of gravity. And so all we've done is weaken that strategic coherence between us and our allies, in this case, South Korea and the U.S. And North it worked played p- beautifully into the North Koreans' hands. So what do you have right now? We have the North Koreans and South Koreans at a little bit of a um, detente of sorts in which they're gonna attend the Olympics together. There's going to be a pause in U.S.-South Korean military exercises. And we, I think the United States really has to take some ownership of course, it's that we should expect the North Koreans to try to break us apart. Of course, the South Koreans should resist that temptation. But the U.S. has really spurred that once again because it can't – it may say America alone. You know, America first is not America alone. But in point of fact, our allies sort of feel like maybe we are and uh, we're just spiraling ourselves downward.
0: Yeah, interesting. And, and I think, you know, it says something about the influence of, of words – on foreign policy and and that you have decades of institutionalized foreign policy being hijacked by a few words, I mean, a few words sometimes, a tweet, as little as a tweet. And this is, you know, Trump has been a civics lesson for all of Americans, I think. And he's also been, uh, you know, an expert graduate seminar in foreign policy for those of us who study it for a living. I, I feel like I'm learning things every week.
2: Yeah, I think this is a critical point, just that atmospherics and ideas matter a great deal when they're the atmospherics and the ideas surrounding the president of the United States. And so one of the defenses of Trump you'll often hear is that, well, the policies have actually been fairly normal if you look at an array of issues, right? The United States isn't withdrawing troops from from Europe. Uh, In fact, it's continuing the European Reassurance Initiative and funding at higher levels and so on and so on and so forth. And you can find lots of cases where this is indeed true. And in fact, if you talk to... Uh, people who work in the foreign ministries or the defense ministries of our allies and partners, what they usually say is that about 80% of the time, the relationship is normal and they're continuing to to do the things that we normally do together. But the other 20% of the time, something really weird happens, usually at the level of a presidential intervention or presidential rhetoric. And it makes them profoundly question how committed we really are, how much we are—we are still committed—not uh, just to particular relationships, but to the whole set of policies that we've pursued over the course of 70 years.
1: Well. Uh, you know, I'm going to switch from movie quotes to, to song quotes now. I, you know, I do think a silver lining for the internationalists, uh, at w- of which I am one, is, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I mean, you see the polling now in the United States on support for allies, role of the U.S. in the world, which, by the way, has always been pretty strong. Um I, uh, you know, I think we have seen at least in the in in, in a five year period the peak already of a, a sense of isolationism, and that was at the point of the U.S. election. Um, and I think you see Americans increasingly, back to the civics lesson, coming to grapple with the reality of how our interests, whether they be trade um, or security environment, whatever they are, are tied to what happens elsewhere in the world. Um, and so I hope that that very fragile consensus politically, but strong consensus maybe at a more fundamental level among Americans about needing to engage in the world in some way can be stronger today than it was two years ago.
0: And that's actually a good conversation. We should have them going a bullet point that one for, for later. But but just to pick up on something you, you guys were saying a couple minutes ago is the Trump doctrine as radical in practice as it sounded like it could be? I, I think both of you have sort of suggested no, but maybe for somewhat different reasons. And if you don't think it's as radical as it sounded, why exactly do you think that?
1: I do think it's as radical as it sounded. I think the the strength of everything that it's attempting to take down, if you will, um you know, it, it, that's what's really mattered for the last year. The question is, how enduring is that? How elastic or inelastic, if you will, are, is the um, connection of us to our allies? Is this is the commitment they have to sticking by us versus going their own way? So, I'll point to some. You know, I think you'll see indicators, right? Like we like we would in the intelligence community, right? We always look for in, uh, indicators and warning, and I think you see some. I mean, you see things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership where uh, Japan and 10 other nations have moved forward. You know, the US has said, we're not doing it. And so they've said, OK, we are. And what's happened within the last week? Uh, President Trump said, well, you know, not so fast. Maybe we reconsider joining. So you can see even friendly countries, if you will, moving forward. Probably far less convincing, but I will note nevertheless, you see the European Union moving forward on this idea of independent security. It's called PESCO, but it's essentially the idea of like a European army. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, But these are signs that... You know, the order can be uh, slowly but surely eroded, let alone what Russia and China and North Korea and Iran uh, are doing. So, you know, is it is it radical like in the last 12 months Has the entire international order come to a screeching halt? No. But anyone who thought it would, I I think there'd be a very small number of analysts who thought that would happen that quickly. I think the real question is how long can we go like this um, before we start to see those indications and warnings really ramp up?
2: I think that's exactly right. So there, it's easy to point to uh, areas in which Trump has not carried out some of his more extreme campaign promises, right? We haven't brought back torture. Uh, we haven't had 45% tariffs on China yet, uh, and, and so on and so forth. And and so, and the, the reason for this, I think, is, is precisely as Kath stated it, which is that there's just a great deal of inertia in American foreign policy. I mean, we have deeply, deeply institutionalized Alliances. The international trade system is deeply institutionalized and it's supported by uh, most of, of the most important countries in the world. Uh, and so uh, you add that into the fact that that the, most of the president's advisors don't actually agree with his basic worldview uh, and also just with the fact that Trump is an extremely weak president. He's an extremely weak president within his administration. He's an extremely weak president politically. It just makes it hard to enact radical changes even if he would want to, although I should note that he actually has tried to make changes uh, based on what we know in some of these areas. I mean there was reporting that the administration was preparing an executive order that was going to revisit the torture issue for issue, uh, for instance, and then that was killed by internal resistance. Uh, but at the level of ideas, the, the change has been profound. And, and basically, Trump has reframed the entire American view of the international order. I, I think the sort of the basic uh, intellectual core of U.S. views on the international order for, for a long, long time had been that it had been one of enlightened self-interest, right? That, that we make ourselves most prosperous and secure by helping others be prosperous and secure. And, and Trump has come along with a very different, almost zero-sum approach to, to international affairs. And that influences the way he he views trade, the way he views alliances, the way he views geopolitical competition, and a range of, of other issues. And so he hasn't simply blown up American foreign policy in the, in the way that I think some people were worried in early 2017. But there's definitely a slow bleed going on because at the level of ideas, at the level of traditions, he's eroding a number of the characteristics that have made U.S. policy effective in the past.
1: I just would add, uh, I was quite remiss not to mention the most obvious example from 2017 of of what we're talking about here, which is what the courts have done with regard to the so-called Muslim ban. Um, I think on homeland security, that's an area where Trump probably his instincts were particularly strong and where the early pushback, um, including up to this point on issues relating to DACA and immigration reform, that's where uh, the system so far has, to some extent, checked any really radical departures from the status quo.
0: Yeah. No, very good points, all of you. But that's why I have just two comments. One is uh, you both sort of focused on the deep institutionalization of, of U.S. foreign policy being the bulwark. Uh, the follow-up question I have for you there is, to what extent, if any, do you think that it's the responsible adults in the room that have been doing the act of restraining versus just sort of it's hard to change things quickly? Because those two theories have very different implications for our predictions. If it's the responsible adults, then maybe they can keep them in check as long as they're around. If it's just taking time to bleed slowly, then we're going to expect more radical change down the road. That's the first thing. And then the second comment is another potential bulwark is public opinion, um, you know how you point out he's a weak president. He's an unpopular president, and I, I just I wrote a, a little post last week about uh, you know public opinion on America first, and it's very unpopular. All of these things, almost every single sort of element in the in the platform is unpopular. Trump's handling of foreign policy is not well thought of. His level headedness is not well thought of. And yet, that appears to not have really slowed Trump down at all. Like, he doesn't seem to care much about it. Um, but I, I'm not sure I agree, Hal, that, that Trump has in fact convinced anyone to support America First. I think in fact there's the polls show what I think of as a Trump boomerang the other way that there there's increased support for certain kinds of internationalism almost just because and I, I actually think just because Trump is taking the other side. And I'm not sure if you take Trump out, if the support stays at that level or people calm down a little bit. But uh, just some thoughts there.
2: So maybe just to be a little bit contrarian, I'll just say that I find the polls on U.S. foreign policy extremely hard to read and, and interpret. Um, because if you look, at, I mean, as as Kath said, and as you mentioned, the polling on U.S. foreign policy and on the specific aspects of U.S. foreign policy mostly looks a lot like it has for the past 40 years or even more. Americans, in principle, they still like free trade. They still like alliances. They like having the most powerful military in the world. They even like the United Nations. Uh, at the same time, they elected Donald Trump. And, and that tells you something about how deep these preferences are. And, and so I, I think an alternative theory is that, yes, at, at the level of of principle – Americans still like all the things that they like but they are increasingly willing to to tolerate candidates who who buck the the conventional wisdom and I mean you you can come up with a list of 40 things that Donald Trump said during the campaign that should have been disqualifying and that probably would have been disqualifying in in an earlier era I mean the fact that the GOP foreign policy establishment not only abandoned but publicly rebuked this candidate almost to a person, uh, is astounding. And he and he still won. And, and so there there's clearly, I mean, to coin to a phrase, there's clearly something going on with American foreign American public opinion uh, on foreign policy. Just, just to pick up on the other issues that you raised briefly, I think it's a mix of these things that is restraining Trump. I mean, I think the institutionalization basically buys time and makes it hard to, to make radical departures in the short term. Uh, the president, the presence of relatively mainstream advisors, uh, limits the damage that the president can do. It raises the, the internal obstacles to, to even trying really radical change. Uh, and, and so when you put these things together, they tend to act as a break on what I view as, as relatively genuine instincts on the part of the president.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, let me start on that second issue or what you raised. Uh, first, Trevor, in terms of you know what's what's due to the restraining adults theory, and what's due to, to sort of time or the strength of the institutions below it, and very simplistically, I think one way to think about this is. Um, inside the U.S. system, I think that restraint has been extremely important. I work a lot in the defense community, and I will tell you, uh, I'm very happy that Jim Mattis is there every day. My guess is, i do not not told this, but my guess is, uh, you know, doing a lot of, um, you know, tactics that try to sure up those alliances, shore up the military itself, um, and try to prevent maybe things like a nuclear conflagration on the Korean Peninsula. <laughs> But I think on the issue of, you know, how deep is – where does it go beyond that? One thought exercise I recommend is just for a moment, which is very hard for Americans, think about us not being the principal actor on the stage. So the question, I guess I would say, is incomplete insofar as there are a lot of other actors, state, non-state, friendly, neutral, not friendly, lots of different sectors, lots of different motivations. And those folks are still acting. They are still moving. They are not just about restraining us. They are about looking out for themselves, if you will. Um, And that's the piece that worries me, that while we're busy restraining ourselves, um, which is better than not restraining ourselves, others are out there being opportunistic in that environment. And um, that's what I think is really the dynamic I see going on. The public opinion piece, I agree with Hal. It has been very... The, it, it's all... It is an all-pulling. depends on how you ask the question and what exactly the question is you ask. The thing that's helping Trump enormously... Is the Republican Party establishment, particularly as manifested in Congress, sticking with him? Um, And that has – I agree that it may not be because they are interested so much in his foreign policy views in particular areas, but because they have things they want. Again, there are other actors involved with other interests. I think the big question is – Will there come a point at which he loses that support? And then it's not just about his poll numbers being low, but about an inability to really have an establishment, which includes a media establishment behind it, to support everything he, everything he, he thinks and does. One side comment, I'll just tell as an anecdote, early in the administration, uh, I was on a panel of, with, of all things, the Russian foreign minister— and he was commenting on this panel well american the american public has spoken on russia policy it voted for donald trump and, and i i was quick to say there's not probably an american who voted based on us russia policy so to get back to Hal's point i don't think that the american public when it, the electorate is Often, going into the polls and voting in particular on you know a, other than use of force issues what we 're doing with regard to foreign policy and it would be it would be foolhardy to assume that any president 's particular deep view on foreign policy um, is what the public is supporting when they 're going into that into that uh, voting booth
0: yeah no, good point uh, okay, so uh, to get wonky for a minute, we have in our possession now a new national security strategy and a National Defense Strategy. And, um, you know, usually I yawn when I see these. Sorry, Kath, I know you wrote one of these a while back. But I, um, I usually yawn because I think, well, not worth the paper they're printed on. Um, but, you know, sometimes in retrospect, you look at them and go, okay, yeah, well, there were clues. Um, what, what do these documents tell us, if anything, about what we can expect uh, down the road?
1: Well, I think on the national security strategy which which is the first of the administration's major strategy documents to come out. As I said in my opening comments, it, it really does try to walk this line of bridging the inter, I think Cal said it in, bridging, you know, between this internationalist base of how we think about foreign policy with this veneer of um, the president's America first rhetoric. There's a lot of mention of reciprocity, for example, in the document. There's um, almost no mention. There was a passing glancing reference to multilateral trade. So there's a lot of emphasis on bilateral trade, things of that sort. So I think it, it, you know, as a document, um, it's well written. It has a lot of internal contradictions that are difficult for me to get my head around how one achieves the foreign policy goals laid out with the approaches that are in there. But it's a fair representation, I think, of how the White House staff in particular is thinking about how they bring issues to the president and and, um, convince him of the merit of some of these international approaches while being faithful to his preferences for things like bilateral trade no, not met. there's no mention of climate things like that. Then, more recently released was the National Defense Strategy, which is a Secretary Mattis document. Uh, like the National Security Strategy, it's meant to be a blueprint that helps, in this case, the Defense Department um, think through how it's going to operationalize the president's strategy. And it's a big signaling document, both inside the military and outside. And, you know, the the key themes from that, or the, maybe the big takeaway is it's very different than the national security strategy. There are, of course, some matching word groups, because that's You know, that's important that the staffs talk to each other and there's matching word groups. But there's a very strong emphasis on allies um, in a way that they're, you know, they appear, of course, in the NSS, but it doesn't come across in that same theme. Um, And there's a very strong emphasis on China, which is true in both documents, Russia, true in both documents, but Pretty much no mention of the Middle East, which is not true in the national security strategy, which spends a good deal of time on the Middle East. So you can see some gaps or differences there that we all are looking to see how it works out. The biggest issue really on the defense side and I'd say security, national security more broadly to include intelligence, homeland security, et cetera, is the resourcing picture because it's tied directly to what the national conversation is going to be and the resolution to that with regard to um, revenue and spending. Um, And so the ambitions of the national defense strategy are quite significant. China is pacing us um, uh, quite dramatically on defense and the strategy acknowledges that, but to meet that kind of challenge and all the other things that are in the document and do everything that the forces are out there doing today and not be efficient, as we are not today in DOD, takes a lot of dollars, at least the way they are laying it out. And so I think there's a big question as to, as there was for the last administration, frankly, in their strategies, how these things marry up and how we're actually going to achieve any of these ends that we've laid out.
2: So I think there was one uh, big idea that came out of the national security strategy, which was a a willingness to be much more forthright in talking about competition and rivalry with China and explicitly saying that we made a bet at the end of the Cold War that China was going to integrate and become a peaceful member of the international system. And that hasn't happened, or at least it hasn't happened yet. Uh, And so the, the tone of the document, uh, I think is quite different than, than anything we've we've seen before, at least over the past 15 years and uh, talking about China. But, but the question is, is this actually going to be translated into policy? And I'll, I'll talk about the resourcing bit in a minute. But the other part of it is just that does Donald Trump actually believe this? Is, it, is he willing to act on it? And, and so what we've seen so far is the exact opposite of a competitive strategy vis-a-vis China, Uh, and that includes everything from withdrawing from TPP without proposing an alternative. Uh, It includes just the frankly fawning behavior that Trump displayed towards Xi Jinping when he visited uh, Beijing in in November 2017, Uh, and and it includes the fact that that we basically appear or or at least appeared for the first few months of the administration to hold the rest of our Asia-Pacific policy hostage to our North Korea policy and to give China a great deal of leverage uh, in that respect. it's just not clear whether there's actually the level of executive buy-in that's necessary to, to translate the words in the national security strategy into more of an enduring policy. And, and I think that brings me uh, to the NDS, uh, which Kath talked about. Uh, and, and I think in some ways, the NDS uh, is actually fairly similar to what you saw coming out of the Obama administration. There's a, there are a lot of pieces of it, I think, that could come almost verbatim from the 2012 defense strategic guidance, the idea that- uh, the major challenge to American security interests is in the Asia-Pacific, the idea that we have to limit our liability uh, in the Middle East. I think the document is uh, a bit more ambitious uh, when it thinks about what a competitive military strategy toward China might actually look like and what levels of funding are going to be attached to that. But again, that's that's the hitch. Uh, and There are two big uh, assumptions built in that, that appear to be built into this document, uh, which I think will be critical. And and The first is that you will have... Uh, not just an increase in funding this year or next year but a sustained increase in funding. Uh, and If that's not the case, then the ambitions of this national defense strategy are not going to be fulfilled and indeed it won't be worth the paper that it, it is written on. But The other one is that this, this strategy like the 2012 DSG is based on the assumption that we can maintain strategic discipline, that we can keep our eye on the ball in East Asia even as bad things continue to come out of of the Middle East Uh, and that was very difficult for the last administration for understandable reasons. It's going to be even more difficult for this administration just because of the way that Trump has put counterterrorism at the center of his foreign policy worldview. Uh, And so if it becomes clear that uh, if we really want to push back against Iran and Syria, we're going to need more troops and more leverage or if we get a son of ISIS that emerges in a couple of years. Uh, are we still going to be willing to treat the Middle East as an economy of force or not?
1: Yeah.
0: Great, great points. I I sense that these documents were written without any input from Trump whatsoever and that he may or may not know they exist. Um, someone's told him about them. He read or saw a picture of them. He likes pictures, but I doubt that they reflect a lot of deep debate among him and his advisors about what strategy really is. and I. Hal, your point there, I think, is spot on, which is these might be what his team wants to be doing, and it may say nothing about what Trump will actually do when it comes to it, especially about terrorism, because I think of all the issues in the security world, nothing fits the America first um, wheelhouse like terrorism does, because it bridges that homeland security, international security spectrum so nicely for Trump, rhetorically and, and otherwise. Um, so, but but in general, I think that what Trump is on board for uh, because of his sort of macho militarism is uh, looking at these documents as blueprints for the extension of primacy that we're going to be number one by a mile. We're going to take on all great power comers or anyone who smells like it um, and the world is a jungle and, you know, we'll behave accordingly. And that's, you know, that's in some sense a very traditional approach. I think you're right when you say this could – a lot of these words could show up in other – uh, security documents over the last 20 years and you wouldn't be surprised to see them um, but i do I do in the at the end of the day wonder if if Trump can be reined in and so let me let me pivot there to to a last question here which is to what extent does Trump the person matter does his personal style affect u.s foreign policy as much as one worries it does when reading the news?
1: Oh, I think it. I think it definitely does. As a political scientist, like I guess I would say it's overdetermined. <laughs> yes, I, I think. I think he, as this this whole conversation is laid out, the, his approach is is one of personal chaos. His own head is not um, in a particular singular direction, if you will, on foreign policy. It's not sustained in a single place over time, and then that's reflected itself in how he likes to be staffed with people with different viewpoints who vie. You know, that's a reflectionist personality to vie out in the open press um, to argue their cases. Someone who is personally um, has a tendency to be ingratiating toward foreign leaders, the the she examples of a good one, but not the only one. Um, you know, with poor Angela Merkel probably being the exception to that. Uh, but then on, you know, on Twitter or elsewhere, going in hard at them, which creates this chaos. So it's very much about Trump, the, the man, Trump, the, the person um, and the president. Uh, so I don't see how this it won't change. I, I'll be stronger. It will not change um, in this chaotic sense um, as long as he's president.
2: It definitely won't change. I mean, we, we've seen enough over the past year to understand that you know, Donald Trump didn't get to be uh, where he is by acting a certain way, and now he's seventy some odd years old, and he's going to completely change his personality. That that's not going to happen. I think the the question is, you know, how much does it matter? And and it's interesting when you talk to, uh, I refer to this as as the anxious ally parade. So these are the people who are constantly coming through D.C. from you know Eastern Europe or East Asia, trying to figure out what the heck is going on. And to a person, they say, well, we have a great deal of confidence in Secretary Mattis uh, and we like Secretary Tillerson, although we have less confidence uh, in him. And so there's clearly a hope uh, which is not entirely misplaced that by uh, sort of just avoiding the presidential level of diplomacy, you can maintain good relationships with the United States. That said, uh, Trump's personality matters enormously in a number of ways. I mean – uh, it matters enormously just because of the level of volatility that he injects into American foreign policy. It matters enormously uh, because of the level of incompetence he he injects into American foreign policy when, when you're dealing with uh, North Korea diplomacy or any other number of things. Uh, it matters because the president gets to set the national narrative basically. He gets to explain how America views the world and how we fit into that and he's doing that in incredibly corrosive ways. Uh, and then finally it matters because uh, for better or worse and I think it's very much for the worst. Uh, he is the representative of the United States. He he is the, the person who is more identified than anybody else with American foreign policy and what the United States is uh, as a country. Uh, and that won't last forever. Uh, Donald Trump will depart the scene at some point uh, and people will be eager for our relationships to go back to normal. But nobody is ever going to forget that we elected this guy. Uh, now that they've seen what the American electoral system can produce, they're never going to look at us quite the same way.
0: All right. On that depressing note, let me let me let me just ask you quickly, the surprise question of the day, quickly give me Trump's best and worst foreign policy decisions. Kath, go.
1: Oh my lord. <laughs> that is a stumper. Best and worst. Um, I, I'm struggling on a best. I think you can give him um, credit for raising attention on allies needing to share burden, if you will. I think that's going to cost us a lot. I'm not sure the game is worth the candle in terms of how that's played out. Um, Best decision uh, probably is picking – I'd have to pick picking Jim Mattis to be his secretary of defense right at the top of that list.
2: So, I think there are a handful of issues where on discrete issues, I would give the administration a more or less passing grade. I think that um, you know Trump resisted the temptation to do really foolish things in the counter ISIS campaign and largely continued a policy that was working while uh, incrementally intensifying it. I think the fact that uh, funding for the European Reassurance Initiative has increased is a good thing. I think that the administration came out mostly in the right place, uh, at least on the military dimensions of Afghanistan policies. So, so you, can, you can find a few things where uh, I don't know if I'd say that these were sort of remarkable breakthroughs but it's sort of steady as she goes. Uh, I think that the decision that is going to haunt us more than any other is TPP uh, because I worry that uh, it's not 1997 anymore. We are in the middle of a pretty intense competition with China for influence in the Asia Pacific and we threw away one of our big pieces of leverage without getting anything in return. And so it's entirely possible that even if we come back to this four years from now or eight years from now, that's going to be a period of time that we're never going to get back.
1: I was just going to say on TPP in particular, I was in uh, Japan recently and that was my sort of my plea to them is please leave a seat at the table. We want to join in when when we're back. But for now, we understand they're going to move forward.
0: Uh, A lot of food for thought. Um, Thank you for joining us uh, for this episode of Power Problems, and thanks to Kathleen Hicks and Hal Brands uh, for joining us. A big thanks to our producer, Jeff Geld, And if you liked the episode, please share the link on Twitter or say something nice about us on iTunes or Google Play. You can always connect with us on social media using the hashtag FPPowerProblems. Thanks for joining